Well, thank you, church, for beginning our time together by ministering to hearts of one another as we sing God's truth. That is an incredibly powerful and meditative song that we sing as we minister to one another, right? These songs are not just for our own hearts, but they're actually, as we unite our voices together, they are a ministry to one another. So thank you for serving uh, our time as we prepare for the meditation of God's word this morning. So we're going to address our attention back to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. So uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open it to Philippians chapter 2. If for some reason you don't have a Bible this morning, please just put your hand in the air. We have two uh, fine-looking men who are going to be working their way up the aisles, and uh, they'd be happy to get you one so that you can uh, joyfully follow along in our study this morning. You are certainly going to want one of those. Well, we certainly saw the deepness of Christ's love on display last week in his humility, didn't we? Saw Christ stooping down from the heavenly ranks, taking on human nature and dying the most shameful of deaths on a Roman cross. But this week, we see Christ not as low and humble, but as high and exalted, (laughs) You know, typically on Palm Sunday, we think about the the praise and exaltation of Christ that he received at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem in preparation for the Passion Week. Today, we're going to push the fast forward button on that narrative by celebrating another truth that is essential to the resurrection Easter story, which is the exaltation of Jesus back to the Father's right hand. And so this is a marvelous passage that we have the privilege to study together this morning. And I want to invite you to stand as we read together from Philippians chapter 2 in order to gain the context for our verses, which are going to be verses 9 to 11 this morning. I'm going to have us start all the way back up in verse 5 to remember the context of what Paul is calling us to here. So Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated, and let's pray as we ask for God's favor and blessing on our time of study this morning. Well, our merciful God, we come now with with humble hearts. We come asking for your mercy and your grace on the study of your word. As we have plunged the depths of Christ's love already, we pray now that you would help us to bask in the eternal weight of glory in Christ's resurrection and ascension back to the Father's right hand. Help us today to... Behold Christ in all his beauty and all of his majesty and all of his glory, knowing that, Lord, it has profound implications on our life. We recognize that as 
sinful, broken, frail humans, Lord, we are weak when it comes to being able to both hear and even on my part to proclaim your truth. And so we ask for your spirit to work, to compensate for our weaknesses, that you would do your work in our hearts for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, ironically enough, it was seven years ago this very month that I began the candidating process to become a formal pastor here at Newcastle Bible Church. And the time that was spent during that candidacy, I did a lot of research, learning about the church, the, the people, the culture, everything that really made up this area And the process of learning about local communities, I learned of a unique ritual that happens around here every single fall. A unique and a a special and a profound thing known to many as Pumpkin Festival. (laughs) The celebration of that great ripe orange crop celebrating from everything from rides to runs to decorating to celebrating everything pumpkin donuts ice cream pancakes you name it but then I also learned of perhaps the most unique of competitions the pumpkin chunkin competition which sadly ended the very year I got here Competition to see how far your special device could launch a 5 to 10 pound pumpkin across a cornfield. Does it get any more Midwestern than that? (laughs) And in the midst of all these unique devices that launch these pumpkins, everything from cannons to you name it, I thought it was interesting to see that they included catapults, something I thought expired with the medieval times, but was apparently resurrected for the purpose of throwing pumpkins. But I think in, when I was thinking this week about this text that is before us, I was thinking about this low nature of Christ and his high exaltation. I think there's something to be said here about this imagery of the catapults being lowered and lowered and lowered to its farthest point, only then to be released to soaring heights and greater distance than ever known before. I think this text is put on display for us this morning where Paul is seeking to show us that Jesus Christ is the highly exalted king over all creation. Jesus Christ is the highly exalted king over all creation. And in some sense, it's interesting because we would expect I think in our human frailty for this passage to end at verse 8. After all, Paul in the context here is is calling the people to a a humble mindset, one that seeks the interests of others over yourself. And then he launches into the example of how Jesus Christ demonstrated that in his life, becoming humble in the form of a servant, descending from the ranks of heaven, taking on human flesh, and then ultimately dying the most shameful and cruel of deaths. Right? Does it get any more humble than that? But that's not where he stops. He doesn't just go on to what we see in verse 12 and says, therefore, this is how you live. Instead, 
He resumes in verses 9 to 11 with this amazing insight into what happens after the humble sacrifice of Christ. The transition from verse 8 to verse 9 reminds us that the grave is not the end of the story. No, Christ has been elevated to new and extraordinary heights. And that has very practical implications on how we now live as his subjects. This text will show us this morning how and why Christ is the exalted king over all creation. But to understand that, we must put on our our thinking caps today. We must assume the the role of a detective asking questions, uh, uh, uncovering rocks, so that we can better comprehend what Christ is calling us to today. And so as such, I want to propose to you this morning two important questions to ask about the exalted Christ. Two important questions to ask about the exalted Christ. And the first question we see in verse 9 is really this. How has Christ been exalted? If uh, the point of this passage is that very reality that Christ has been exalted, what does that mean? What does that look like? How has Christ been exalted? And what we notice in verse 9 is that there is a transition that is taking place here in this passage. Up to this point, or at least over the last several verses, the main actor in this account is Jesus himself. Jesus is the one humbling himself. Jesus is the one taking on the form of a servant. He is the one dying on a cross. But in verse 9, the transition transition takes place where he is no longer the primary actor, but God the Father is on Christ's behalf. Here we see God the Father exalting Jesus in response to his humble sacrifice in redemption, which is why our text begins with that all-important word, therefore. Therefore, in light of this, therefore, in light of Christ and his humbling and his redeeming work, this is what it means. And this is a magnificent response on the part of God the Father to all that his son accomplished here on earth. And so we begin our study this morning by asking that important question, how has Christ been exalted? In what ways has he been exalted? And it begins in verse 9 by helping us see that Christ has been exalted by the Father by being given the highest position. By being given the highest position and Paul really begins this section with, with gusto. He utilizes a word that is used nowhere else in the Bible because what's interesting is that when it says that he highly exalted him, that word highly exalted is actually one word in the original language. And Paul is a master, like we are, of making up words. And that's what he does here. He makes up a word that essentially means super exalted. God super exalted Jesus. It describes something going from the the lowest of lows to the highest of heights. Similar to the way that a, a catapult does strain itself all the way down to its lowest possible point, only then to be released, sending the object to indescribable heights. Such is what we see with the super elevation and exaltation of Jesus. And in many ways, this is consistent with Jesus' own spiritual law that he sets forth in the Gospels. He said in Matthew chapter 23, verses 11 and 12, when he's talking to the scribes and to the Pharisees, he says, the greatest among you shall be what? Your 
servants. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so God highly exalts Christ, not as a reward, not as a a declaration primarily of victory, but as divine vindication. God the Father putting his stamp of approval on Christ and his redeeming, humiliating work and bestowing upon him the honor that is rightfully due unto his name. Now, this text doesn't give all the specifics of it, but we know that it's implied, and this is his resurrection, right? First, in his rising from the grave, showing that God approved of his sacrifice and his redeeming work. But it didn't even stop with just raising him from the grave. It included raising him from this earth, right? And the ascension, sending him back into heaven so that the Holy Spirit could come and fill the hearts of his believers, But there, even in heaven, exalted to the highest position of power and authority at the right hand of the Father in heaven. There is no greater position of power and privilege than at God's side. And so Christ has been exalted by being given the highest of positions, but he has also been exalted by being given the highest of names. By being given the highest name this further identifies how Christ has been highly exalted in verse 9. Notice what Paul says. He has been exalted and bestowed with the name that is above every name. So naturally the question for us this morning is, what is that name? A quick glance at the text for many would make us think, well, verse 10 says, at the name of Jesus And while that might seem rational at first glance, I think a closer, detailed look at our passage would point us in a different direction. After all, notice that this seems to be a new name that Jesus is being given that he didn't necessarily have or wasn't recognized before. Jesus was just a birth name to identify him, even though it did still describe his saving purposes. Another thing we have to understand is that when verse 10 talks about at the name of Jesus, certain things don't always come through in our English translations uh, that are probably actually there in the original language. And so what is probably understood there is something better uh, translated as the name that belongs to Jesus. Not the name itself, but the name that belongs to Jesus. And finally, I think it's important to note that there seems to be some type of upward thrust that is happening in these verses that is culminating and climaxing with what happens in verse 11, which would tell us that the name being bestowed upon Jesus is bigger and better than just his earthly name, Jesus. So then, now that I've held you in suspense a little bit, what then is the name? I think the answer is found for you right there in verse 11. That every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. That Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no name higher than God's own name. Jesus, in many ways, I think what Paul is doing here is trying to connect us to the very divine name of God himself. So, Let's do a little exercise here, a little trivia for you. And this, this is where I ask for some participation. It's okay. This is the time I'm going to let you speak in church, all right? So, New Testament was written in what language? 
Oh, come on, you can do better. What language was the New Testament written in? Greek, right. All right, what about the Old Testament? Hebrew. A couple of you are maybe thinking a little bit of Aramaic as well. And if so, extra credit to you, right? So the Greek word in the New Testament used for Lord is the word kurios, which is what we see there in verse 11. That is the very same word used to represent the official name of God in the Old Testament, which was the name Yahweh. Or if you were to look at your Bibles and see where it says LORD in all caps, that's what it's describing there because God has a formal name. It is the name Yahweh. Now, perhaps what I just said to you is incredibly confusing. You're saying, Pastor Scott, can you just give me a visual example of what you're talking about? And if that's you, I'm glad you asked that. So let's look real quick at where I think Paul is directing us to here, which is in Isaiah 45. If you want to turn there, you certainly can do so. Uh, But I have a few of those excerpts on the screen for you to see where Paul is making this connection. Look here in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18. I think this sets kind of the context of this section of Isaiah. For thus says... Yahweh, who created the heavens. He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Now, verse go down to verse 22, what he says here as he kind of builds on this argument here. This is Yahweh speaking. Turn to me and be saved All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. Listen to what he says here. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. This is an incredible connection. You see it here. Of God the Father being connected to God the Son, one in name. After all, Isaiah 42, 8, a few pages before this, reminds us that God does not share his glory with any other. It belongs to him alone. And so what is he doing? He is connecting here in Philippians 2, this very idea of the divine name of God, of Lord Yahweh being bestowed upon Christ. Now, naturally, that raises some questions because our minds go to the reality of, well, wasn't Jesus always God? Hasn't he always been equal with God, co-eternal with God? After all, that's what verse 6 tells us. And if you're thinking that, you're absolutely correct. Right, you are. But what the Father is doing here is placing Jesus in a position of recognized superiority over all creation in a way that was not fully seen or fully known in times past. In other words, think of it this way. God was not giving Christ glory that he previously lacked, but rather he is giving him Glory publicly displayed so that all might fully see and know. This then is how Christ has been exalted by being given the highest of positions and being given the highest of names. But why? 
Why has God done this? What is the purpose behind it? And that is the second question here. Leads to the the natural question that comes from our study here. And this is where Paul takes us next in verses 10 to 11. Because like any good detective, we seek to understand reason. We seek to understand motivation for why something is done. So why then has Christ been exalted by God the Father? Well, Paul continues his explanation in verse 10 by helping us see that Christ was exalted first to receive total submission for himself. To receive total submission for himself. These honors that have been bestowed on Jesus, or these honors have been bestowed on Jesus so that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So notice there, there's two main actions that are happening in this submission. The first is that every knee should bow. The bowing of the knee is an act of submission and surrender to a power that is much greater than yourself. It is to take the position of complete surrender and to acknowledge the honor and the glory and the splendor of that to which you are bowing to. We have seen this in times past with kings and queens and dignitaries, the the bowing of the knee in submission and reverence for that person. But notice here, it's not even just that, it's it's the scope of this submission. Look at what he says here. It's that every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth. The idea is that all of creation, no matter what state, angel, demon, living, dead, all will bow to Jesus. And at the same time, they will also perform the second major act, which is to confess that he is Lord. That he is Lord. This Confession, this word for confession here, within the context of this passage, is not necessarily the confession of sin, as if it's salvific in some type of way, but it is confessing identity as to acknowledge or to agree or to accept. It is to fully recognize Jesus for who he really is. You see, when all creation finally beholds the exalted, risen Jesus, they will fall on their knees and confess that the Lord of all creation is none other than Jesus Christ himself. What a marvelous moment this will be in world history. Not just in its glory, but also in its judgment. Because again, what is happening in these verses is not some form of universal salvation as if everybody is now worshiping Jesus as their Lord and Savior, as the one that they have repented and believed in. No. It is that glorious day when Jesus will be fully revealed to all creation and no one, and I mean that no one, will be able to deny it any longer. Those who have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness their entirety of their lives will no longer be able to suppress that truth any longer. It will be fully revealed and it will be fully acknowledged to them. As such, this is a moment that has yet to take place. Verse 9 has already taken place in in, in the past that Christ has already been exalted to that position. But verses 10 and 11 are describing a day that is yet to come at the second coming of Christ when all will see Jesus in this true state. Verses 10 and 11 
As such, this passage covers the whole timeline of Jesus' ministry, beginning in verse 6 with eternity past and his co-eternality with God to eternity future when all will finally see and acknowledge Christ for who he really is. Praise God for those of us who have already bowed that knee, who have acknowledged that, who have come to that realization now. The question then for us is, why has God exalted Jesus? So that he would receive total submission, of course, but this also in turn brings a second thing, which is to achieve maximum glory for the Father. Why does God do anything? What is God's highest aim? In fact, if we were to ask ourselves, why did God even create us in the first place? The answer to every single one of those questions is the exact same. It is to glorify him. Now that might, that all might be able to, that all might be able to see that he is the one who is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. In the Old Testament, the the word for uh, glory was a word that meant uh, weightiness or heaviness. So let's venture back to the pumpkin festival for just a moment. You guys ever seen the the heaviest pumpkin competition? You've seen the size of some of those things? They're huge. But only one gets the prize as the the heaviest, as the weightiest pumpkin. And it gets paraded as the glorious pumpkin of the year, right? It gets the honor. It gets the glory. To glorify God is to give him the appropriate weightiness. To give him the appropriate glory, splendor, honor, praise that is due unto his name so that everything we do in life would showcase him, not ourselves. Guess what? That happens best when Jesus Christ is in his rightful place. When Jesus is high and lifted up, when he is seen by all for who he really is, when he is displayed in all of his beauty, in all of his splendor, so that when people even look at our lives, what they see is Christ in me. Why does God the Father exalt the Son? So that all may glorify him. Perhaps it would be appropriate to think of one extra question this morning. What does this mean for us? What difference does this make? What do I do with all this information that I have just received about Christ? You know, I echo one commentator, Gordon Fee, who says this, in light of the grandeur of this passage one can easily forget why it's even here. And I agree. I've read and I've studied this passage countless times over the years. And it really wasn't until this week that I wondered, what in the world am I supposed to do with these few verses here at the end? What does the exaltation of Christ have to do with me? I I get what he's been calling me to with this attitude and this mindset of being humble to adopt the same life and mindset that Christ demonstrated in his humility. But to me, that stops at verse eight. So what do these additional verses have to do with my life then as a Christian now? Paul sends us into this rich material and the exaltation of Christ, but how do I relate to that? What does that mean? 
And why is Paul including it into his letter here to the Philippians? What is he trying to teach them? And us by extension, what should we glean from this so that we don't treat this as just some Christological knowledge to have in our back pocket for when people ask us questions? What difference does it make? Let me give you a couple points to ponder this morning. First of which is this, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. The saying is true that what we believe about Jesus determines how we live. So we begin with one of the most important and inescapable truths from this morning. Jesus is God. Paul's connection to this text in Isaiah 45 is unmistakable. God does not shame his, share his name or his glory with anyone else. It is his and his alone. And as such, Paul is helping us see that Jesus is the sovereign God, not just of the New Testament, but of the Old Testament. The scriptures are his. He is that sovereign God. Now, I recognize that some of this is mind-blowing for you today, but I don't think it's any less amazing than some of the crazy theological math that Tyson helped us see last week. This passage blesses us by seeing even more clearly the triune God that we serve, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, united in their common mission together to bring glory to the great name of our God. As such, Jesus Christ is worthy of all worship. And guess what? He will receive that worship one way or another because everyone will worship Jesus someday. Everyone will worship Jesus one day. He will receive the honor due to his name. But how much better to do that now in humble submission rather than in judgment? The question for every one of you this morning is have you bowed the knee? Have you bowed the knee to the sovereign Lord of all creation? And if you have not done so, when? When will you bow that knee? When will you confess that truth that Jesus Christ is Lord? James Montgomery Boyce had this to say. He says, we need to ask ourselves how we are going to make that confession because every one of us will make it someday. You will either make it willingly as you acknowledge him who is your Savior and Lord or you will be forced to acknowledge it with bitterness moments before you are banished from God's presence forever. A sobering truth. But how much better to submit to Jesus in this life? If you have not done that, what is your delay? What is stopping you? And if it's because you don't want to let go of the authority and the rule on your own life, let me remind you of this this morning. Yes, Jesus is God. Yes, Jesus is King. Yes, he is the true ruler of all things. But do not let that be a threat to you. Jesus' rule in your life is not a threat. It is the very source of freedom. It is the very source of freedom because he is good and what he wants for you is so much better than what you think you want for yourself. So run to Christ today. He is your freedom. Thirdly, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Our passage is clear evidence that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is not to try to turn this as into this passage is all about us, but this truth does show itself. Those were the exact words of our Lord Jesus and in no place is that more clearly on display than here in Philippians 2. This connects us back to the larger theme of this section to adopt the humble mindset of Christ. In no place was the humble was humble sacrificial service on display than in the life and ministry of Jesus. Laying aside his rights and his privileges, taking on gross human flesh and form, walking among us as one of us, coming obedient to the point of death, even the most shameful and obedient of deaths on a cross. It reminds us that the type of exalting that Christ speaks of, church, listen, the type of exalting that Christ speaks of here is so much more than the type of exalting in this life. So often we think to ourselves, well, that means we, we will somehow be advanced more in this life, that we will climb the ladder more in this life. No, it was primarily an exalt, exaltation after death. For those who have been humbled and become poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is the promise that Jesus gives us in his word. That for those who have humbled themselves, become poor there's great riches in store for them. But let's get even more practical with this passage. Because I want us to think about how meditating on this humble nature of Christ really changes us. Because when we behold the exalted Christ, it provides us peace in the midst of trial and suffering and opposition. After all, this is the very context of what Paul is writing about here. Look back at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also what? Suffer for his sake. This is the very context of why he even starts writing about Christ in the first place. Opposition should be expected. And what should give us peace in the midst of such trials and hardships? Looking to the exalted Christ. Looking to Christ. Why? Because if you, because if God vindicated him for his trust, how much more will he do for you? He will do that same thing. Romans 12, 19 calls for us not to seek justice on our own, but to leave room for the wrath of God, for God to vindicate us in his perfect timing, to entrust ourselves to the Lord. Your life of faithful obedience to Christ will one day be vindicated, if not now, one day. As such, you can have peace because God is in control. He reigns supreme over your life. He is the sovereign ruler who knows what is best for you. And guess what? The final chapter has been written. You can have peace because you know your outcome is secure, Christian. God has given you the final chapter of the story. Don't act like we don't know how it works. Jesus wins. He is the victor. So bask in that truth. Allow that to give you peace in the midst of your suffering. But secondly, by beholding the exalted Christ, that provides us joy for humble obedience and submission. 
After all, this text is foundational for the application that's going to follow in verses 12 to 13, where we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, whilst also depending on God who is at work within us. This full mindset from humility to exaltation fuels the joy to obey. How? Because when you see Jesus as God, when you see Jesus as your good and rightful and worthy king, guess what? You rejoice to give him your life. After all, who is more worthy of it than him? You work out your salvation while remaining dependent on the God who is at work in you. As Christ humbly obeyed the sovereign will of his heavenly father, so we now give our lives as a sacrifice in response and obedience to our exalted king. This obedience especially takes the form of putting others first, which is a sign of any healthy gospel community when husbands are sacrificially putting the needs of their wives before themselves, when parents are putting the needs of their children above their own, when elders are doing so for the sake of the flock that they serve in the church, when members are mutually doing so for the sake of one another, that is where it demonstrates itself. The joyful obedience. And in all of this, we seek to do what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, where he says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let's lay aside every weight in the sin that so easily weighs us down. And let us run the race of faith by doing what? Looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is where now? seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. By looking to Christ, we have all that we need to run this race of faith. So do so in beholding your Lord. And then, by beholding the exalted Christ, we are given hope for our future home and body. This points us to an important truth that we find later in the letter in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. It's closely associated with what we talked about with, with peace in the midst of suffering, but this point assures us of a featured portion of our inheritance that Christ has secured for us. Because he rose and was exalted in his glorified body, so will we. There's something beautiful at play in Philippians 2 because what we see is Christ becoming like us, right, in verses 6 through 8, becoming like us, so that we ultimately can become like him. How do we see that? Well, we see that later on in this book because by being conformed to the humility of Christ, the Philippians will one day be exalted when Christ transforms them into his likeness. Look what he says in verses 20 and 21 of chapter three. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. A life in Christ is being transformed into the likeness of Christ. 
Therefore, we have the hope that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that in light of the resurrection, in light of the truth that one day we will reign with Christ in these resurrected, glorified bodies, therefore, remain steadfast. Be immovable. Be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that when you labor, when you work for the Lord, it is not in vain. It is not empty. It is not pointless. It is will be glorious. So remain steadfast. And finally this morning, I think it's important for us to look back at how this whole passage concludes to the glory of God the Father. You see, when Christ is magnified, God is glorified. When Christ is magnified, God is glorified. God's glory is intimately connected to the exaltation of Jesus the more Christ is put on display, the more God is glorified. What happen, that's what happens today when we make much of Christ above ourselves in our suffering, in our obedience, in our hopeful expectation. Our life begins to serve as one giant billboard pointing people back to Jesus. In fact, consider this. Christ's exaltation in our lives is directly connected to adopting the humble mindset that Paul is talking about in this passage. And if you don't believe me, look no further than John the Baptist's words in John chapter 3, verse 30. Because what does John say about his ministry as it relates to Jesus? He says, he must increase, I must decrease. Less of me, more of him. When I shrink back, when I am more humble, when I live in a way that does not point people back to me, I point it back to Christ. I put him back in his rightful place so that when people look at me, what they really see is Christ in me. As James Montgomery Boy says, the way to honor God is to give honor to Christ. And so church, let's show the world our amazing, exalted Jesus together. May God give us strength to put on the humble mind of Christ so that together we may love one another in humble sacrifice and glorify our great God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, now what we have talked about, we now ask that you would perform in our hearts and minds through the power of your spirit. We know that your word, Lord, it is living, it is active, it cuts to the deepest parts of our inner beings. And so I pray that this morning you have pierced our hearts in a way that draws our affections ever deeper into the mind of Christ. Help us to see him as more glorious, more beautiful, more worthy of our lives than we ever have before, that we might live in self-sacrifice, pointing other people to him in all that we do. We thank you that, Lord, you have transformed so many in this room by having them bow the knee to you, confess in the deepest recesses of their hearts that you are Lord. But I recognize that all in this room have not done that, Lord. And so it is my prayer that you would pierce their hearts today to help bring them to that conviction now in this life before it is too late to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is worthy of their lives. Would you be pleased and honored to do that in their lives today, we would ask, in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.